I love this gospel passage for a number of reasons. Uh, most of all, because it's uncomfortable. It, um, it, it kind of, it, it doesn't kind of, it presents a, a strong challenge to our sort of tame, domesticated understanding of who Jesus is. You know, this idea of, well, I expect that Jesus is going to be nice all the time and he's gonna be compassionate and gentle all the time. And so that's what he has to be. When in fact, he then comes to us and says, no, that's, that's not how I have to be. You know, it's, it's even uncomfortable just reading the, the, the passage where, you know, it's like he calls this woman a dog, this woman who is like in terrible time of suffering with, with her daughter. Um, anyway, and, and I'm, not, I'm not really gonna try to uh, give a, a, any sort of satisfying answer to why, why he does this. In fact, I don't know why he does this, but, but I think there's something actually valuable to letting ourselves sit in the discomfort of this, of, of remembering that we don't actually, like, Jesus doesn't have to come to us according to our expectations, but instead, he calls us upward and presents himself to us as he is. Even, even though sometimes he says things that are uncomfortable and difficult, we don't wanna just dismiss them, uh, but instead we wanna, we wanna let ourselves sit in the discomfort and let ourselves be challenged by him. What, what I wanna talk about mostly is uh, this, this first reading, which we'll, we'll get to, but um, just, to, just to rehash a little bit of, of the story, or a lot of the story, the whole story, basically. So we know that back at the time of Abram, uh, way back in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abram and, and gives him a set of promises. He changes his name to Abraham, and he gives him this set of promises where he promises him descendants, as many as the stars in the sky. He promises him land, the very land where he's standing at the time, which was the promised land. And then he promises him that because of his faith, the entire world will know God's blessing. So, so descendants, land, and worldwide blessing. He gives these promises. And then from there, a long kind of drawn out story. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has two sons named Jacob and Esau. Uh, Jacob is, is kind of the favored son there. And, and his name is changed to Israel. And then Israel has 12 sons. Uh, and then from there, the people of Israel, the Israelites, basically flourish. They, they begin to multiply and all these different things. They end up in the land of Egypt. Uh, and then after a long time, they're enslaved in Egypt. And the Lord wants to bring them out of Egypt. He wants to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. So he does this through the person of Moses, of course. Moses is the leader of the people. They cross through the Red Sea. They're in the desert. You know, all these different things. Okay, so then what happens? While they're in the desert, God gives them um, a particular call. He, he, gives, he shows them a particular kind of favor. He's already been showing it from the time of Abram, but it's while they're in the desert that God reveals, like, these are my people. This is, this is like my, my chosen, my firstborn son. Or, or he, he, he uses other language sometimes, referring to himself as like the bridegroom and his people as the bride. So, so these are his people. And, and, and giving his people this call, this, this favor, he also provides for them a number of things, which we actually heard about last week in our second reading. So, so Paul was talking about the Israelites, how, how they were adopted by God, how he gave them the glory, you know, the, the glory cloud that, that led them uh, across the Red Sea, that, that descended into the temple, this, this presence, this cloud of God's presence. He gave them the covenants, right? The covenants with, with Noah and uh, with Abram, with, with Moses and with David. He gives them these covenants where he makes, it's not, it's not so much like an agreement, but it's, it's like a, he commits himself to them. Like, you are my people and I am your God. These, these incredible moments of deep relationship that God establishes with his people. He gives them the law, the Ten Commandments, so that, so that out of all people in the world, they're the ones who know how they can please the Lord by following his law, the Ten Commandments. No one else has these, these gifts, right? No one else has the covenants. These other nations, these people who live around them, they don't have the same favor of God that the Israelites have, that God's chosen people has. 
That it's only them. He gives them the worship, right? So, so this, is, this is a really important thing that, that we don't really talk about much. Uh, this, this worship that, that God actually, he wants to be worshiped in a particular way. He doesn't, he doesn't leave it up to his people to decide how they want to worship him. But instead he says, no, this is how you are to worship me. And he gives them that so that, so that what? By worshiping him appropriately and properly, they can again continue to receive his grace and his favor. This, this is so important that God, he has expectations about how his people worship him. We'll, talk, we'll actually talk more about this towards, towards uh, a little bit deeper into the homily. We'll, also, we'll, t- we'll talk about a lot more next week uh, when we talk about, about Catholicism in general. But then he also gives him the promises. Uh, he gives uh, the, the people the promises. The promises of what? Of the worldwide blessing. The promises of the descendants. The promises of the land. The promises of God's favor and his care. It's, it's to these people, the Israelites, only that God gives these things. Okay, then, then what? They, they, cross into the prom, or they cross into the promised land. They build the temple, all these things. Throughout the story, there are these promises, uh, among the promises, that God is going to send a savior. Because the people end up in exile. They end up away from the land. I talked about this a, 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 few, a couple weeks ago, I think, at the Transfiguration. Uh, they, they end up outside the land, and the Lord delivers promises that he's going to send someone to save them. Of course, we know this uh, in, in hindsight as Jesus. But, but before we really get into the, the story of Jesus, we want to sort of let ourselves sit in this place of, of being in exile, of, of knowing the promises of God, that he's going to come and fulfill these promises, that he's going to save them and rescue them from, from slavery or from exile, that he's going to bring them back. He delivers these promises. And so the people are waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And there's prophet after prophet after prophet. Uh, People are living and dying, living and dying, not receiving the fullness of the promise of the Messiah. And then finally, Jesus comes. Jesus comes after people have been waiting for so long for him to come. And he comes. There's there's a catch here. Uh, And the catch isn't on God's part. It's on the people's part. That we know this. We know the story. When Jesus comes, what happens? The people, God's chosen people, the Israelites, reject him. Jesus is the one who was promised from of old, but then it turns out that when he comes, he's killed, right? They they don't want him to be the one to save them. They want someone else. They want someone more powerful, maybe, or someone more who, who's more abundantly evident who he is. We, we don't know what, what exactly they wanted, but what we do know is that they didn't want Jesus, Nonetheless, Jesus, he's, he's, he's killed, of course, but then he rises from the dead. He ascends into heaven after 40 days. He just starts floating upwards. And then after 10 more days, nine more days, he gives the Holy Spirit to his apostles, the, the, the leaders of his community that he established. From there, the people go out and they preach and they preach and they preach doing miraculous deeds, telling people about the Messiah, telling people that Jesus has fulfilled all of the scriptures, all these things. The people are, they're, they're doing all this. And, and then what happens? The Jewish people, some of them convert. Many of them, in fact, convert. Sometimes there's, there's one moment where 3,000 people convert. There's another moment where a couple thousand more people convert. Uh, some people, but, but many of them don't convert. Many of them don't buy into it. They don't believe it. So then something, something crazy happens. As this, the, the apostles are preaching, they're persecuted, and so they're pushed outside of the city of Jerusalem. They're pushed outside of the, the tribe of Judah, and they're pushed into the, the, the surrounding regions. And when they do this, Peter, the leader, the clear leader of the apostles, he has this vision where he sees these, these animals, these unclean animals that the Jewish people were not allowed to eat coming down from heaven. And he hears a voice that says, eat this food. And, and Peter says, no, I, I can't eat that. It's unclean. I've never eaten unclean food before. 
And God says, or the voice says, what I have made clean, you must not call unclean. And so there's this strange thing going on. And at the same time, these non-Israelites, we call them Gentiles, these non-Israelites send for Peter and Peter comes to them. And in Acts chapter 10, there's this mind-blowing moment for Peter where he suddenly has a realization that the unclean animals, which only the Jews were not allowed to eat, the Gentiles had no problem eating them, now being proclaimed that these are clean or that these are able to be eaten, uh, now the, the, the Gentiles coming and saying, hey, look, we received a message from God that you have a message for us, so you just tell us. Peter has this incredible moment of clarity where he just says, oh my gosh, I see this. Like, God shows no partiality. It's, it's not about just us and us only, but that God wants to expand his family, of course, to, to, among the Israelites, but also among the Gentiles, that, that anyone who loves God and fears him and reveres him, anyone, whether Jew or Gentile alike, those people are welcomed into his family. And so from there, he starts to preach even to the Gentiles, to the non-Israelite people. And then from there, the, the mission really gets, it, it gets going. So, so Paul, especially, he goes and he preaches. Everywhere he goes, he goes to Thessalonica, he goes to Corinth, he goes to Colossae, he goes to Philippi, right? These, these letters that we hear about in, in, the, in the Bible on Sundays. Uh, he goes to these places and he always goes first to the synagogue, the place where Jewish people go to offer their worship on Sundays, or on Saturdays, excuse me, on the Sabbath. He goes there, they reject him. So then he says, fine. Since you reject me, since you reject the Messiah, I will turn to the Gentiles, to these non-Israelite people. And when he turns to the Gentiles, he's not universally accepted, but many people come to believe in the Lord Jesus. And so they start giving themselves over. They start entering into, into baptism, into life with Christ. They start joining themselves to the Lord. It's, it's this incredible thing. And now Paul, in our, in our second reading here, what he's talking about, uh, he says this, okay, um, I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I glory in my ministry in order to make my race jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So, so this is what's going on, right? They're, they're God's chosen people. God chose them from all the way back to the time of Abram. He chose them and promised them all of these incredible things and gave them these covenants and gave them the worship that he wanted to be worshiped with. But they rejected the gospel. And because they rejected the gospel, it allowed the apostles to see that, oh my gosh, we need to turn to these non-Israelite people. So what does he say? Because their rejection, it leads to what? It leads to the reconciliation of the world. It leads to the entire world coming and entering into God's families. This incredible thing that, that doesn't seem like it would fit within God's plan, but for some reason, their rejection, it leads to these people coming to know Jesus. But now Paul is saying, but hold on a minute, like what about these people? These are God's chosen people. We can't, we can't just deny them. We can't just reject them and get rid of them because those are my people after all. That's, that's what he's saying. And so his hope is that, that these people, the Jewish people who have rejected Jesus, his hope is that they would see the freedom and the joy and the love that the Gentiles have encountered in Christ and in this new community of, of God, that they would see this and think like, oh man, I'm missing out on this, right? I need, to, I need to surrender my stubbornness. I need to surrender my hard heart and move over to join the family because this is what God wants his family to be. 
That's what Paul is hopeful, hoping for. And there's no guarantee that it's going to happen, but, but that's the hope. And, and for these people, provided that they live within the covenant of God, right? This is, this is how God, he works throughout history, through covenants, where again, he gives himself to his people and they give themselves back to him in return, where it's this incredible, uh, a beautiful relationship of love, of, of, of just giving totally to the other and belonging totally to the other. So that, that's what he's hoping for. Now, the question is, how, how do we do this, right? Like, like how, if, if these people are to be converted, and, and for that matter, we, we could do the same kind of thing, right? We could, we could say, okay, well, we're all Christians. We know plenty of Christians who we say now are God's chosen people. We know plenty of Christians who are not living like Christians. We know plenty of Christians who are not, they're not really embracing the fullness of the gospel. They're not really embracing their call as God's chosen people. And so, and so in some ways we, we could say, well, maybe there's hope that for, for those of us who want to live in God's family, that maybe these people who reject the gospel would see the love and joy and, and uh, power that God gives to us, and that somehow maybe these people will be converted. So, so that's, that's the case. How do we do this now? Like, what is this covenant that God wants to establish? And for that, I want to look at the first reading. So I know I do this from time to time. If it's helpful for you to look at the first reading, I want, to, I want you to open up to page 24 in your missalette. If it's helpful. If it's not helpful, or if you're sleeping or something, that's fine. You, you, can, you can do that. But, but here's the deal. So, so the first reading, Isaiah. So Isaiah is writing at the time when God's people are exiled. They're, it's during this time of exile where they're still waiting for the Messiah. And God is now going to promise to them that the Messiah is coming. So look at, for example, these first four lines. Thus says the Lord, observe what is right, do what is just. For my salvation is about to come. My justice about to be revealed. Right, so God is promising to his people, like, look, it's coming. Like, you, you got to get yourselves ready. you got to start acting rightly. you got to start acting justly because my salvation is coming and I'm going to reveal myself. And when I reveal myself, you want to be prepared for that. But then it goes on to say this, what? The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord. So the foreigners, those are what we could call Gentiles. So, so the Gentiles, right, the non-Israelite people, the non-Jewish people who join themselves to the Lord. So, so he's already talking about how it's possible for non-Israelites, people who are not part of God's chosen family, it's possible for them to join themselves to the Lord. How do they do this? Well, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, ministering to him, loving the name of the Lord and, keep, and becoming his servants. And then he's like, okay, let me be really clear about this. Who are these people who join themselves to the Lord? All who keep the Sabbath free from profanation and hold to my covenant, them I will bring to my holy mountain and make joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable to my altar. So, so who are those who join themselves to the Lord? Those are the ones who keep the Sabbath free from profanation and hold to my covenant. This, this is so important. How do you know whether you're one who is, who is a member of God's family? How do you know if you're truly living as somebody who has joined him or herself to the Lord? By keeping the Sabbath free from profanation and by observing and holding to the covenant of God. That's how you know. So now with that, we got to ask the question, well, what, is it, what does it mean to keep the Sabbath free from profanation? So this word profit, like what does it mean to profane something? If something is profane, that means it's not sacred. So if something is sacred, which is what the Sabbath is supposed to be, if it is sacred, that means it's dedicated to a religious purpose. For the Jewish people, God's chosen people in the old covenant, the Sabbath was made for two things, worship of God 
and rest from work. For us as Christians, Catholic Christians or Christians in general, our Sabbath has been transferred to the Lord's Day, Sunday, today. So that now Sundays are supposed to be like the Sabbath was for the Jewish people. So how to keep the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, free from profanation. In other words, to not let it look like anything else during the rest of our week. Sundays are for two things, worshiping God and resting from work. This, this is so important. Then, of course, to, to hold to his covenant. Now, there, there certainly are, just like with, with, with this reading, there, there are many parts of the covenants of God in the, old co- in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenants. There are many laws that they have to follow, you know, the, t- the Ten Commandments, etc. Just like, too, with the new covenant that Jesus establishes, we know that there are different parts of, of, of how to live out that, com- that, co- that uh, covenant. But we know that at the heart of that covenant is the Sabbath. Now, here's the question. Where do we hear Jesus talking about a covenant? Of course, at the Last Supper. When he says, take this and eat it, this is my body, and then he says, take this and drink it, this is the blood of the covenant, my blood of the covenant. So for us, when we're talking about the Lord's Day being a day for worship, we're not talking about just any kind of worship where you can figure it out for yourself. We're talking again about, remember, God gave the Israelites the worship. He has a particular way that he wants and expects to be worshiped by his covenant people. And like I said, we'll talk more about this next week when we talk about Catholicism. But of course, for us as Catholic Christians, we believe and we do the same things and say the same things that Jesus said at the Last Supper. So when we're talking about covenantal worship on the Lord's Day, we're not talking about going out into the wilderness to pray. We're not talking about going to other denominations or non-denominational places. We're talking about coming to Catholic Mass, where at Catholic Mass, we offer true and right worship to God, the worship that Jesus has given to us, his chosen people. This this is so important, and I know that that in some ways, I know that in maybe in many ways, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir a little bit, because I know that there are many people here that come to Mass week after week after week after week because you want the Lord's Day to be a day that is holy. But I also know, and you know this, that there are many Catholics that don't come to Mass every week. And what's more, I know plenty of Catholics that come to Mass on a weekly basis and holy days of obligation who don't actually go home and rest for the rest of the day. I know plenty of Catholics who come to Mass, and then either before Mass or after Mass, they they go home and they just work. When that, in fact, is profaning the Lord's Day. And I know that that maybe hearing this can be uncomfortable, maybe because you've never actually received a a strong challenge about this. But but what I also know is, like, you've got to let yourself think about this for a minute. The Lord says, I want to give you rest from your work so that I can refresh you. The world, you're not going to find anything like that in the world. Your jobs, they're constantly demanding more and more and more of you. Your, your, your lives, whether it's your activities, your sports, your families, they're constantly demanding more and more and more of you. And I'm not saying that these things are bad, but everything around us is constantly desiring more and, de- and demanding more. And what the Lord says is actually, I, I want you to take on less on this one day so that I can refresh you and give you rest. The the command of the Lord to rest on the Lord's day, to worship him at mass, it can sometimes seem inconvenient. It can seem like it's too much. But but really, do do we really trust and believe that what he wants for us is best? Are we really willing to engage in this covenantal relationship with him?
with him alone to be his people and he can be our God. Like this, this, is, this is so important, you know? And like, just think like, what if, what if we really embrace this in its fullness? Do you think that would provide some kind of a strong witness value for the people who don't? If we embrace this in its fullness, like what, what if we encountered a new kind of joy, a new kind of freedom in the Lord? Maybe, maybe that would actually bring to conversion these people who aren't living it out. I, I think that could have a powerful witness for the world. And, and, and ultimately, like this, I think is, this is where we get to, to our gospel passage. Just, just real quickly, it's the last thing. You know, I don't, I don't have any idea why the Lord speaks to this woman in this way. I have no idea why he calls her a dog, why, why he seems to be so derogatory to her. I have no idea. But her response, I think, is so beautiful. What, is, what, is, what does she say? Well, okay, so the Lord says, it's not right to take the food of the children and throw it to the dogs. But then she says, please, Lord, for even the dogs eat the scraps that fall from the table of their masters. She's saying, look, I don't, I don't care what I am to you. I belong to you. You are my master. And so I claim myself to be yours. And then from there, the Lord says, okay, you get it. This covenantal relationship, you give yourself to me and now I give myself to you. How, how incredibly beautiful is that, that, that when the Lord delivers difficult words or when it seems like he's not answering our prayers or, or when it seems like the world around us is falling apart or his commands are too demanding, how beautiful of a response is it to just say, yeah, but, but I belong to you and you're my master and I'm willing to let you teach me. I'm willing to let you do whatever you wanna do because I belong to you and when I belong to you, that means you belong to me and that's, that's such a beautiful covenant.